This is Tablonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Inflation has eclipsed the COVID epidemic as Americans' greatest concern. Having not seen an inflationary spike for nearly four decades, many current consumers and market actors are unfamiliar with its causes, its effects, and the potential remedies available to policymakers to bring it back under control. Indeed, what had been thought to be a temporary phenomenon attending the aftermath of a pandemic now vexes us daily as we shop for eggs, gas, or a potential new home. Will this ubiquitous rise in the price of everything continue and perhaps accelerate? Or can policymakers in our US legislature and Federal Reserve Bank slow and reverse this trend with interventions that voters will accept? My guest today is Ramesh Panuru, columnist for Bloomberg and editor of National Review. Mr. Panuru has written extensively on the causes and risks of inflation and on which politically viable actions policymakers can take to contain the current trend. Mr. Panuru will share with us his views on the origins and contributors to our current inflation, who is most likely to suffer from its effects, and which potentially painful policy choices are available to cool this overheated economy. When I return, I'll be joined by columnist and editor Ramesh Panuru. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Bloomberg columnist and editor of National Review, Ramesh Panuro. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ramesh. Thanks for having me. Okay, now our topic is one that's at the top of mind for nearly all Americans. We're going to be discussing inflation, its causes, its effects, uh, and perhaps give our listeners a sense of how we might plan to address it. Uh, but so let's start at the beginning. First, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, what is inflation? So different people have defined inflation in different ways and sometimes get quite upset with you if you don't use the term the way they want to. I think the most intuitive and common way um, is also the most useful, and that is to describe inflation as a general rise in the price level. So if on average prices were at 100 um, in uh, 2020 and then they get up to 102, in 2022, excuse me, 2021, then you've got 2% inflation year over year. Okay. Is there a general sense of uh, what it should be? Is there a sort of a, a background of, uh, you know, we, we should always have it, but it should be at this level? So this too is a source of contention. Um, central banks around the world, starting in the late 80s, have largely converged on the idea of 2% inflation each year being the ideal or the, the target that they ought to be striving for. It's a little bit arbitrary, but the idea is that that creates a reasonable amount of price stability um, while also uh, for you know, allowing for <clears throat> different kinds of adjustment to take place. 
So in your first answer, you talked about uh, you know, the average price of everything being 100 is sort of a, an imaginary conceptual concept. Uh, and now it's 102. That means it's essentially a higher price for the same exact basket of goods uh, and no change, uh, such as a commodity like a gallon of gasoline is a gallon of gasoline from one year to the next. If it costs more, that's inflation if, it, if it's across the right. board. Um, now, um, if if all boats are rising and inflation is increasing the price of everything, wouldn't it also affect the uh, cost of labor, which is a uh, the flip side of of um, inflation, which would effectively mean my paycheck, your paycheck, would go up by the same amount? Does the rise in the income uh, negate the effect of inflation? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> first of all, just to uh, um, talk about one of the things you said how changes in quality, um, we're you know we're. So the idea that it's 2% inflation costing 100 and then costing 102 assumes you've got the same basket of goods. But of course, there can be all kinds of things that uh, change. So if um, you know the size of the candy bar you're buying shrinks, um, basically, <clears throat> that's a kind of hidden kind of inflation, right? If the price is still the same. Um, people call it shrinkflation sometimes. They do try in these statistics to capture that kind of change. Um, also, <clears throat> if the price of apples goes up, um, maybe people switch over to oranges, and there are technical disputes about how you correct for that kind of substitution effect um, if, if people can avoid some of these price increases. Now, you're absolutely right that wages are another um, price, the price of labor, that is affected by inflation. And if you've got a steady and predictable um, 2% inflation year after year after year, the idea is that wage rates will adjust, that people who wouldn't have gotten raises will get a 2% raise. Um, people who would have gotten a 2% raise will get a 4% raise. That's sort of it's everybody in the economy just expects the price level to be a little bit higher next year than it was this year. But of course, that sort of a textbook model of the way inflation works and, and actuality inflation doesn't work that way, particularly when you've got unanticipated inflation, where maybe it takes some time for um, this inflation to permeate every market, including the labor market. And during that period in between, if you're a wage earner, you're finding the purchasing power of your paycheck going down. And of course, there are other kinds of, uh, there are other things that can happen with inflation um, that uh, that that cause the price of the products you buy to rise, but don't help your wages. And that's the case with a supply-led inflation, an inflation that is caused by a blow to your productivity. I see. Uh, so, so inflation doesn't rise all boats. Sometimes it, it's an uneven rising. Uh, if you're uh, either, let's say, not an income earner, or you're maybe fixed income retiree, uh, you're a saver, uh, your savings don't grow with inflation. Uh, so you may be left behind. Uh, so let's talk about that. What are some of the primary negative effects of inflation in, in conceptually? So the loss of purchasing power, of course, is the one that is closest to everybody's mind. But it also makes the economy less predictable um, if you've got an unsteady inflation. And so that makes it harder for businesses to make investment plans, for example, or for households to make long-term plans. Um, <clears throat> they don't have that steady backdrop against which they can make the plans. There's also um, what's called menu costs. 
Um, and just think about it very literally, like the, um, the restaurant has to keep changing the menu um, because uh, prices keep changing. Um, there's um, the way that inflation is baked into some taxes. Now, that's better than it used to be um, in the 70s when we had our last big bout of inflation. The ta income tax brackets weren't indexed for inflation, so people would find themselves paying higher taxes even when they weren't getting ahead um, in real purchasing power uh, of their income. Um, but it's still part of our tax code and things like capital gains. So you can end up paying a capital gains tax when you haven't in real terms made any capital gain. And the effective tax rate therefore keeps going up. So there are all kinds of costs that ripple out through the economy. Okay, so let's ask the you know let's get into the meat of this. We know what infl inflation is. Uh, this is a harder question. What is it that causes inflation? Um, you've already mentioned a uh, supply uh, shock, uh, but let's go deeper into that. What what uh, I'm sure it depends on who you ask, but what causes inflation? Well, the typical cause of inflation is an excessive growth in the money supply. <clears throat> But really, anything that increases the total level of spending is going to cause a demand-side inflation. That's most of what we saw in the 1970s. It's part of what we're seeing now. If uh, there's, you know, the, the, the famous um, definition of inflation or explanation for inflation um, is too much money chasing too few goods. Now, the too few goods, that's the supply side of the problem. Uh, too much money, that's the demand side. That is um, uh, the central bank um, running uh, a monetary policy that is too loose, um, that is leading you know, to uh, uh, too much currency in circulation, uh, for example, um, would be the very classic case of, uh, of how a central bank can go wrong with inflation. And uh, Another metaphor people often use for this kind of inflation is overheating the economy. I see. So um, you've mentioned a couple of things. I think that you were, were both uh, channeling Milton Friedman there with the too, too many too many dollars chasing too few few uh, goods. So let's analyze that equation. We've got uh, uh, too many dollars and too few goods. Uh, let's start with the too few goods. Um, we all know that we have supply chain issues. We've covered that on this podcast in earlier episodes, but let's let's uh, analyze that. Uh, are we still blaming too few goods on uh, supply chain shocks that were a result of our recent pandemic? I think that that was a bigger cause of the inflation in the first half of 2021, and it is a, a pretty big cause of the inflation that we're seeing in Europe. Um, but it's been less of what has been afflicting us for most of the last year. So still a factor, um, but, uh, uh, but since mid-2021, I would say um, too much spending uh, has been a bigger part of it. And by too much spending, I mean really the total level of spending throughout the economy, all spending on consumption uh, and investments, um, public and private and business, uh, it's, uh, you know, you want that growing at a steady rate and it hasn't been, it dropped, um, substantially at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, then it rose sharply. And I think some of that sharp rise is justified as a way of catching up after you had that big drop. 
Um, but it's been excessive and uh, and it's been, I think, clearly excessive since late 2021. And uh, the central bank uh, has been uh, has been too slow to arrest that. I see. So uh, we're talking about uh, a constraint in supply um, uh, and then an attending um, inflow of, of spending. So, again, um, we hear a lot about um, uh energy constraints, uh, price of gas is front top of mind for everyone. Uh, I think it's gone up 50% in the last 18 months. Um, the administration is calling that the uh, Putin price hike. Uh, uh, and of course, energy, gas is an input for all other goods. Can we attribute some of this inflation to spike in uh, energy price? Yeah, um, absolutely we can. It's, that's typically the case. Um, but of course, gas prices were rising before um, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I think there's no question that that invasion has made things worse. But we had an inflation problem uh, before it. And um, the excess spending problem is not a Putin caused problem. Um, it's, uh, you know, that that is a domestic policy problem. That's a central bank problem. Um, the, you know, what you, the point you made about gas prices um, being uh, energy being an input into almost everything else, that's a very important point uh, because sometimes people will say, um, well, you know, if one price goes up, um, people can just, uh, you know, spend more on that and spend less on other things and shouldn't change the overall. Um, uh, inflation rate, and that's really not true when it comes to um, some an input price that has a negative effect on productivity, like an increase in energy. It's like making everything. You know, if you make everything twice as hard to make, like take twice as much labor um, to produce the same amount of products, you're going to have less output and or higher prices. Um, and there's not a whole lot that a central bank can do about that. Um, so. <clears throat> All just a way of saying that the input price uh, issue is absolutely part of this problem, um, and we, you know, we just have to be able to hold in our minds that we've got both a supply and a demand problem, and and too often people want to make it one or the other. Democrats typically want to make it uh, an entirely supply um, issue, as though that absolves them of any responsibility, um, you know, which it actually doesn't. Uh, but it's also not true; it's both. So, so okay, let's uh, let's move off of the uh, supply side and towards the demand side. You've already cited the fact that a lot of people through the pandemic were sitting home, uh, not spending money. They couldn't spend money. They're stuck at home, uh, perhaps saving, uh, and uh, they would naturally want to make up for lost time when uh, when uh, restrictions are lifted and we can all get back out there. Um, so we've got that spike in demand as you describe. Um, but there was also, of course, uh, a stimulation of that spike in demand by the federal government. In many ways, it um, it uh, influenced our ability to spend. Uh, there were direct outlays, uh, there's debt forbearance, unemployment supplements, uh, payment protection programs, all kinds of uh, alphabet soup of stimulus. Um, uh, of course, that's introducing the idea of far more dollars chasing the same number of goods. Um, is that, uh, to what degree is the uh, federal government's fiscal policy to, mm -hmm. uh, to blame for the stimulation in demand? Well, here I think it's a complicated story. And um, I thought that a lot of the spending that the federal government engaged in uh, in 2020 
Um, and particularly in early 2021 with President Biden's so-called American Rescue Plan was excessive. Um, and I thought it was excessive uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly having to do with wasting money um, that could have been more productively spent uh, elsewhere in the economy um, and creating bad incentives. Uh, but I, at the time, you know, even though I was opposed to Biden's spending uh, plan, I thought it wouldn't have a big effect on inflation, partly because changes in spending over the previous decade hadn't had a big effect on total spending levels or on inflation because it had been offset. Um, you know, if so, for example, in uh, um, early 2013, you'd had some spending cuts from the federal government and some tax increases, um, and the central bank offset that. Uh, so that um, so that the overall effect on the economy um, wasn't very big. This time that didn't happen um, because the central bank was simultaneously engaged in a kind of loosening of policy under um, Jay Powell. Uh, you know, partly loosening, you know, as a as a response to. The pandemic and the effect on the economy that they, they thought it was the right thing to do. Um, but the the combined effect of this fiscal uh, and then monetary loosening was excessive. And uh, and that's how we got here. And I also think, um, if you'll permit me a little political digression, one of the reasons that the, the Federal Reserve let things get out of control in the second half of 2021 was there was uncertainty about the leadership of the Federal Reserve itself uh, because Biden had not committed to renominating Powell. And there was a great deal of pressure from the left. Uh, and the left typically doesn't like monetary tightening, likes monetary loosening. Um, and the Democratic incumbent is definitely going to not want interest rate hikes. Uh, and I think that can ex help explain some of the delay in responding to the clear signs that not only did you have an inflation, but this inflation was not transitory, and this inflation was, in fact, um, fed by excessive demand, excessive spending. So, I mean, you you, you say that uh, rates or um, have a political valence, but uh, I think what you you're really trying to say is for incumbents, not for left or right or Republican or Democrats, right? And all incumbents want low interest rates and a and a uh, say a, a heated, perhaps not overheated, but a heated economy. Um, it, it, nobody wants. Well, I think to I think it's both. Afraid, right? Yeah, I think it's both in this case. I, I do think presidents just typically they want low interest rates. Um, they don't want to have the risk of a recession from an increase in interest rates. Um, President Trump was certainly a low interest rate uh, person, um, uh, which also I think has to do with his background as a real estate developer. Um, but I think that there's also this additional ideological uh, overlay, which is that the left tends to favor looser policy um, than the right and tends tends to think a little more inflation is more tolerable um, than the right does. Now, I think that this is actually, in particularly in this case, a mistake that Biden and the Democrats would actually be better off if um, we'd started this tightening cycle in uh, late 2021 um, and gone a little further in that. Um, I think we've actually got a pretty strong labor market. If you look at um, uh, vacancies and, uh, and employment growth um, and the economy could have withstood that. 
and you'd be better off as uh, the party in power with inflation under greater control. I mean, you might be facing some losses anyway because you're coming into a midterm. Midterms typically don't go well for the party in power, um, but I don't think you'd be you'd be seeing um, the potential catastrophe that Democrats are now seeing, where I think, you know, in a very real sense, inflation is just devouring this presidency. So let's, uh, again, so uh, again, the the party in power is uh, uncomfortable with the levels of inflation we're all seeing right now. It's not good for uh, their prospects in November, but let's let's dispense with some of the, or not dispense, with some of the uh, narratives that are coming from the, the Democratic Party. Um, a lot of people blame inflation on uh, um, uh, the exploitation of sellers, or uh, oh, so-called right. yes. read, read of corporate. We have it's a uh, our own Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she's our senator, or one of our senators, who uh, has a wonderful creative portmanteau called greedflation. That that essentially this is uh, suddenly corporations have become greedy uh, just recently. So, uh, is there any merit to uh, greedflation? Well, I mean, I think you've hit on the major problem with it, which is that it 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 attempts to explain a variable by reference to a constant. Companies are always trying to um, maximize their profits. It's not like we had low inflation for most of the last decade because companies decided, you know, we don't actually care about making profits anymore. Um, So something has to have changed where um, a bunch of companies, you know, all through the economy, um, all at once um, decided that the way to do that was to raise prices. And uh, and I think that once you start thinking in those terms, you, you just see how um, how pitifully inadequate um, Senator Warren's explanation is. Um, you know, she's she has responded to this inflation by introducing legislation that would um, prohibit uh, large companies from, you know, I think the the phrase is unconscionably excessive. Uh, price increases. Well, what does that mean? Who would define it? How much litigation would be involved in that? Um, but also, uh, if you look uh, into that legislation, um, she's, she's, she says, you know, you, yeah, you're allowed, you know, if the bureaucrats decide essentially that you've got a supply chain problem, um, then okay, you can raise your prices um, enough for that. Uh, but implicitly, what they're saying is you can't raise your prices in response to changes in demand, um, which is nuts. Uh, and, uh, and, and you know, like a market economy just can't function if um, companies aren't allowed to set prices in response to changes in um, both supply and demand in their markets. Indeed. Uh, yeah, we, we probably could do an, a whole podcast on the uh, downside of price controls and why why they lead to bread lines. But let's move away from that and uh, talk about the other way uh, um, uh, the, the Democratic uh, Party right now is deflecting from this concern about inflation, saying, look, we've got inflation, but so does the rest of the world. We're looking at Europe. They've got mm-hmm. inflation. Uh, Biden certainly hasn't and, uh, affected their policies. Uh, how is it that uh, we would be blamed for something that is a universal phenomenon? So there are two things that um, bear watching. One is there is, I think, just kind of um, you've got some of the same policies being pursued everywhere. So I think European Central Bank policy was also too expansionary. Um, And uh, I think, though, 
we've also got a little bit of, of a coincidence because um, uh, you've got a bigger supply problem uh, in Europe right now, um, and you've got a bigger demand problem here in the United States. So you've got the same sort of a very similar kind of headline inflation number, but very different causation in both cases and different policy responses are called for um, in different degrees in each of the cases. That was, you may not have sent it, but that was all explanation one. Um, explanation two, um, I do think there is something to the idea that the United States is the world's monetary superpower and that um, if it's deflationary or inflationary, that tends to get exported to other parts of the world. Um, for reasons having to do with, you know, for example, other currencies being pegged to the dollar. Um, but uh, but I think that, um, you know, there's there's something a little screwy about the leadership of the United States saying, uh, well, this is a global economic problem. It's, it's not our responsibility. I mean, we're the United States. Right. right. Uh, indeed. So, so let's uh, let's move away from. Uh, we'll accept and stipulate that we do have it. It, it is here. Uh, we do think we can uh, have policy choices that will make differences. But let's start with. Uh, we're coming out of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, thank God. Um, and theoretically, uh, supply chains will go back to normal. Uh, will that likely happen and and be, uh, let's say, salutary to those hoping to reduce inflation? In other words, if we uh, resume our supply, will the demand for that short supply uh, normalize and, uh, you know, that will battle inflation? Yeah, I think that um, that as supply chains get unsnarled, I mean, unless there are more... Um, shocks right um because we you know we had the pandemic shock uh and we had the um russian invasion shock and uh the world might not be through with shocks you know there was concern <clears throat> i think it basically hasn't panned out but there were concerns that the the resurgence of the pandemic in china uh would cause big supply problems um <clears throat> and uh so you, you can't rule that sort of thing out but um but one of the things about supply shortages is that they should, I mean, there are powerful market forces that act to um, fix those. Um, and that should happen over time. And that should reduce that level of, um, or that cause, that kind of inflation. But you've still got the demand problem. And the excessive spending um, is not something that gets fixed just because supply chains get fixed. So, okay, then let's uh, shift it. Even if we do have plenty of supply, we've got too much money still. Um, right. I think we have uh, um, uh, Senators uh, Manchin and Cinema to thank for the fact that we don't have an additional three or $5 trillion in a Build Back Better that was not passed, but quite a bit of stimulus was uh, in the trillions, I believe uh, another $5 trillion in sort of uh, uh, pandemic stimulus. That's still filtering down. Is that a, a stimulating... Um, uh, helicopter money going to continue to mm -hmm. overstimulate us well into the future? Is it, you know, if we turn off the spigot, how long will it take to again normalize? Well, I think that um, you know, obviously, it takes time for some of these changes, both positive and negative, to work their way through the economy. And um, so, you know, the people call uh, people say that monetary policy has uh, the, the the phrase everybody uses uh, who studies this is. Um, like long and lagging effects. Um, uh, it's, um, 
However, I think some of the effects would be a little faster than that. Um, you know, the signals to financial markets um, that the Fed is serious if it raises rates um, uh, enough to give the markets a jolt. Um, that shows up in, uh, you know, as we've seen, some of that shows up in asset prices. Um, some of that shows up in uh, just market expectations of future inflation. And when the markets don't expect future inflation to be so elevated, that in itself um, has a salutary effect because people aren't trying to uh, uh, raise their prices to keep up with, uh, with what they see coming for them. Um, so, so I think that, that, uh, a good policy change could have quicker effects than people sometimes think. So we're talking specifically about, um, uh, monetary policy. We're talking about the, the Fed, Jerome Powell, uh, we're actually recording on June 15th before, uh, the two o'clock announcement of mm -hmm. rate increases. So we, we can speculate here, but, but our listeners will know what the outcome was. Well, the, I think odds on favorite are for a, a 75 basis point increase, for the benefit of our listeners, how is it that this um, change in rates could have an effect, hopefully have an effect on yeah. dampening inflation? How how is it the fact that we're making money more more expensive? How does that filter through the economy and then right. ultimately tame inflation? Well, there's a mechanical effect um, in, uh, for example, you know, it cools the housing market if uh, interest rates are higher, um, people are not as uh, as quick. Um, to purchase homes and to bid the prices of homes higher. So there's that effect on inflation. Um, and then that also affects rents. Um, but I actually think that that the biggest effect is 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 simply the expectations um, that when people have confidence that the Federal Reserve is going to do whatever it takes to get um, inflation back under control, that's the most powerful effect that the Fed has. Um, and in fact, the more confidence there is, the less actual interest rate increases the Fed has to engage in. Um, it's uh, a lot of what the Fed has to do is um, is changing market expectations. It's just like sort of, you know, um, <clears throat> the primary way that traffic signals green and red lights, uh, uh, work is not through police tickets, right? It's uh, it's it's just changing the way you know drivers act, uh, and it's um, uh, it's not self-regulating, right? It's the government setting up those traffic signals, um, but it's uh, it's a kind of nudge to market participants to act in a particular way and to have certain expectations and expectations of what other people are doing on the road. Um, so too here. Um, and, and a lot of what I think went wrong for the Fed last year um, was that it was sending the wrong signals about its intentions and, uh, and how committed it was to keeping inflation from getting out of control in the first place. So I think you've anticipated, I was going to ask, how high does the Fed have to raise interest rates to essentially tame it? But your, your answer, I think, uh, I'm going to guess is, it has to raise it a lot less if everybody accepts the fact that it will do anything it takes to raise interest rates. So if, if you don't believe, if you believe that the Fed is on it and they're doing their job and they plan to do their job, uh, expectations for inflation go down, ergo rates don't have to go up quite as high as they would otherwise. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. And one of the reasons I think that the uh, Fed ought to surprise the markets on the upside by having a little bit higher of a rate increase um, than people expect right now um, is so that they don't have to keep doing it. Um, so that maybe that that uh, ends up being enough uh, to convince people uh, that um, that this is this is the end or the beginning of the end of this burst of inflation. So uh, we're, we're running out of time, but I do, I do want to get to the uh, sort of historical. You're, you're trained as a historian, so I thought I'd ask a historical question. We did reference the '70s and what happened then. Uh, I'm old enough to remember, uh, but I wasn't buying houses at that time. I was playing on the you know schoolyard, but uh, um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, we had uh, rampant inflation, and uh, then Chairman Volcker came out and essentially tackled a, an extreme uh, bout of inflation with interest rates, uh, you know, then double digits. Um, would we? Uh, are you concerned, looking back as a historian at that bout of inflation, really the last time we, we were here, uh, that we will see that kind of pain? Because of course, those kinds of interest mm -hmm. rates cause enormous amounts of uh, unemployment and and uh, uh, recession. Are we inclined to have to go that far and be? Uh, you know, it, will it be that painful going forward? If, in your view, I think we ought to be able to avoid that degree of pain because we got to remember that the inflation of that period took quite a while to develop. Um, and it took a while for people's expectations <coughs> excuse me, of inflation to shift upward on a sustained basis. So we started seeing that increased inflation in the late 60s. And then policymakers sort of flailed around in response for more than a decade. Um, right now, if you look at long-term inflation expectations, if you look at um, measures of what the market is expecting inflation to be six to 10 years from now, they're a little high. Um, I think the Fed needs to bring them down, but they're not wildly high. Um, and if you look at um, uh, that, which means that the Fed doesn't have to, um, to really upend people's expectations, it just needs to moderate them, bring them down a little bit. And you combine it with the fact that the labor market's in, in pretty good shape, um, to start with, those things suggest to me that if the Fed does the right thing now, um, we can have, if not the sort of soft landing, we have a tightening cycle that doesn't result in a recession. But if you do have a recession, maybe it can be mild and short. All right. So we've talked about uh, many of the levers that government has to to uh, combat inflation. Um uh, we've talked about how it exacerbated inflation, but we're now trying to turn the ship around. Uh, in your view, you know, given the government we have, the uh, upcoming midterm elections, and and the policy choices that are on the table for uh, those uh, politicians who want to remain uh, in in, uh, in office, what other levers do you see that we could be pulling to mitigate the effects of uh, inflation and inflation expectations? Well, I think there are an enormous number of government policies that have an effect on productivity, uh, and it's typically a negative effect on productivity. And if you simply lifted some of those burdens, um, you would contribute to the long-term productivity of the economy, which is just a good thing to do in general. And that would also put some downward pressure on prices. Not all of it would be quick and immediate, uh, but some of it would. So, for example, reducing tariffs um, would, uh, uh, particularly if you reduce tariffs on 
critical inputs, um, like the things you use to make semiconductors, that would, I think, have a pretty quick effect and uh, put some downward pressure on prices. Um, you know, if you increase domestic energy production, got rid of some of the restrictions on that, that would also have an effect. And maybe some of that would even feed into um, today's prices because it would affect people's um, expectations of future prices and future supply levels. Um, you know, we had this huge infrastructure bill that was supposed to make our economy more, more productive, but there's language in that bill um, at the behest of Democrats that prevents you from using any of it to automate the ports, which is something that we ought to be doing to make um, supply chains more efficient, but that unions um, naturally dislike. Uh, and so the Democrats won't go for. Um, the problem that you come up against again and again is there's either an ideological objection or some kind of political interest group objection. Uh, and the natural instinct of the Democratic Party is always restrict supply through regulation, subsidize demand through spending. That's a recipe for more inflation. Um, and it makes it very, very hard for them to respond to inflation in a way that actually helps solve the problem. So um, so we can't blame it all on uh, Democrats. I suppose also uh, Republicans uh, resist. Uh, Donald Trump in particular was a fan of uh, tariffs, um, you know, and protecting American jobs. What you're saying is free trade uh, is one of the main remedies for uh, fighting inflation. Um, uh, including you know, facilitating that free trade through ports and, and such. Is that what you're saying? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's one of the main remedies, but it's one of the, it is a remedy and it is something that could be done. I mean, the president could do a lot of this with a stroke of a pen because a lot of the tariffs were imposed by the stroke of a pen. And so if you really think that uh, inflation is a huge threat, I think you try to attack it on all fronts and you do the things that you can do. Indeed. All right. So we're getting close to the end of the time together. Um, I don't know if you want to dust off your crystal ball right here. I'll ask you the $64,000 question. Uh, how high do you think inflation will go? I think uh, we're looking at headline inflation of 8.6%. That was uh, a Friday last week was what the annualized inflation rate. Uh, how high can it go and how long do you think it'll last? Well, I don't uh, try to uh, make predictions, especially about the future, as I think Yogi Berra <laughs> said. Um, but I, I, my sense has been that policy has consistently been a little bit too little, too late. I would like to be pleasantly surprised, but I think that we are going to have this elevated inflation level um, for some time. So I, I think we're going to have it um, into 2023. Indeed. Okay. So uh, sort of a grim outlook, but at least uh, it, it is uh, temporary. Depends on your timeline. Um, it will end. Uh, uh, and so you, you've called it 2023 is when we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I'll, I'll, I'll take that to the bank. Thank you very much for joining us today on Hubwonk. Ramesh, you're always a, a, a welcome guest and a, a fund of information. Thank you for joining us. You're most welcome. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would be easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. 
We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or suggestions or comments about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Mm-hmm.